just my annual meeting with the rest of the evil cabal that runs the world. <laughs> First stage was isolation. Disable their communication and transportation. Make the target as deaf, dumb, and paralyzed as possible. Setting them up for the second stage. Synchronized chaos. Terrorize them with covert attacks and misinformation. Overwhelming their defense capabilities, leaving their weapon systems vulnerable to extremists in their own military. Without a clear enemy or motive, people would start turning on each other. Done successfully, the third stage would happen on its own. What's the third stage? Death to America. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Wetwired. I'm Sean Honest. And I'm Julian Paul Butt. Today we're asking the question, what if a zany mismatched group of three liberal Gen Xers, one millennial, and two Zoomers were thrown into a house renoed by Chip and Joanna Gaines, just as the world was ending? We're going to peek into the blue-pilled minds who can't help but wonder if, just maybe, all those MAGA QAnon conspiracists might be onto something. We're talking about the immensely popular apocalyptic fantasy, Leave the World Behind. I kind of like to think of it as an apocalyptic mashup of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and The Great Outdoors, because it's got that it's got that vacation comedy sort of dynamic going on. Then you throw in like, oh, this is really this house really belongs to black people. I, I mean, you know, uh, for for apocalypticism, I mean, there's there's no there's no piggy in the conch shell going on here. It's it's a lot more muted than that. Um, a little bit more subtle and full of drunk wine mom. This movie is all of that, plus a dash of the supremely neoliberal mantra, everyone is responsible, but no one is to blame. I think it was totally fitting that this movie was produced by arch neoliberal con couple, Barack and Michelle Obama. Where are their papers? Where are their papers, Sean? We got, <laughs> we got to know. <laughs> all right. But no time for that now. Let's get into this movie. Leave the World Behind exploded into Netflix's top 10 and has barely budged since then. I checked today, it is still number four. And it was number one for a solid couple of weeks. I mean, like, there were millions of viewers more by orders of magnitude than this number two slot for weeks. It was unseated by Meg 2, the, uh, the, the big shark movie with Jason Statham. <laughs> <laughs> It's directed by Sam Esmail, the creator of Mr. Robot, and stars Julia Roberts, Mahershala Ali, Ethan Hawke, Mahala Harold, Farrah McKenzie, and Charlie Evans. And there's even a few scenes with Kevin Bacon. With this cast, you'd think like, wow, they might have really, like, they, this could really be something. I know when I saw it, I thought like, hey, oh, except for Julia Roberts, this could be good. I mean, they, they really extended the idea of the six degrees of Kevin Bacon to make the casting for this film. I mean, how, how can we get all the disparate actors that are really well known 
and connect them to Kevin Bacon because he I feel like he's kind of the star of the show in a lot of ways. But we'll get to that. The center of the hub. (laughs) (laughs) He's the moral of the story. (laughs) The movie is based on the 2020 book of the same name by Rahman Alam which was a book that ended up on Barack Obama's 2022 summer reading 2021. list, I think. 2021. 2021. So this movie, the, the book has been in Obama's orbit for some time now. We'll, we'll talk about the, his, his relationship with the film and a little bit about the production company that has really put out some stinkers. I mean, like pretty much like everything that they've touched has just been just so icky. So Jules, as usual, couldn't help himself and just had to read the book, uh, even though I told him it wasn't necessary. But <laughs> since he did, we're going to take advantage of it. And I, he's going to be dropping in with relevant bits here and there, especially when the movie and the book diverge. Apparently, I'm a masochist. And my new special kink that I've discovered is reading terrible books by terrible authors. I, I from <laughs> From Ron DeSantis to... Uh, uh, our, our golden boy in that, in this uh, house. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a kink for me. Apparently I, I didn't know it until now, but I read the book and it is, uh, you know how people say that the book is better than, mo- than the movie. The <laughs> movie is so much better. Uh, even, even at two hours and 20 minutes, this film, uh, that is, that is this excruciating dragging on of, bad storytelling is so much better and has so much more plot and action than the dog shit of a book that it was. It's completely devoid of substance. The either the plot or the themes involved in it. It has such hacky, bad writing. The, the author, uh, alum, he, he really uses as a stand in for the majority of the writing, uh, using a lot of adjectives instead of actually writing anything of substance. This is something that if you read the five star, I'm sorry, the one star reviews on uh, Amazon or Goodreads or anything like that, everybody talks about how unbelievably bad this book is because it uses so many adjectives. And, you know, it's, it's like an admonition where you have a creative writing 101 class where the, the, creative writing teacher gives you the advice, hey, you know, you could, instead of saying that there was a table, you could describe the table. You could say it's a purple table, for example. This guy is writing like he's in a creative writing 101 class. It's it's so fucking bad. And I mean, it's like pulling teeth to get to the next fucking point. Right, he has the pro account on, th- on thesaurus.com. I, I think he's in the pocket of, of the big thesaurus. That's really what's going on here. <laughs> like the definition of paid by the word. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what it is. But, I mean, every fucking chapter is just describing some mundane, unbelievably un- uninteresting thing, which would make sense. Like th- there are definitely contexts for that when you're trying to make a point about a character that's really meticulous for example uh or or if you're if you're trying to make a point about uh how bizarre some details are totally checks out and and there are lots of great examples of good fiction where they just go to excruciating detail about every little thing 
And it actually works for those works of fiction. In this case, it, uh, the entirety of chapter two is just dis describing an Airbnb. What kind of Airbnb? Any Airbnb that you've ever fucking been to. That's the, the soap was in a little dispenser. It's like describing things that, that are unnecessary. It's, it's horrendous. And uh, as he goes on. Um, so some people liked it. There, for some reason, I, I think people who liked it have never read a book before. Uh, that's my that's my running theory. But but one of the things I, I have another theory about why they <laughs> liked it, and it's the same reason why people liked the movie, and it's because they have the same the the same sort of feverish dreams that the author did. They have the same I think nightmares. They do. This book came out in 2020. As uh, as a reminder to anybody who forgot in this wait, what was going on in 2020? In this ongoing fucking daydream that we've had for the last number of years, that this, seems this waking like nightmare. Time has <laughs> stood still. In 2020, that was when we were introduced to COVID 19 and all the lockdowns and all the rest of it. But just in case you were confused about whether it was 2021 or 2020. Because honestly, there have been so many times where I have had to look it up myself, including this time, because I keep forgetting which year was which. It's all just a fucking blur. That was also the exact same summer where we had the George Floyd protests. Mm -hmm. So one word keeps popping up in the five star reviews in Amazon and Goodreads and stuff like that. And that word is prescient. And even fresh air on NPR, which is quite relevant for some of the things that we're going to talk about uh, had this, this uh, uh, positive review, this glowing review in 2020 of the book, a slippery and duplicitous not Marvel of a novel. Leave the world behind is an, is atmospheric and prescient. It rhythms of comedy alternating with shock and despair. It, its rhythms of comedy alternating with shock and despair mimic so much of the of the rhythms of life right now. That's more than enough to make it a signature novel for this blasted year. I think that's why the book blew up. I think that's why it was timing. It was just fucking timing. I don't even know if it blew up. I'd never heard of it until this movie came out. I hadn't either. I mean, but it wasn't like the, the mean, scorcher was, of the summer or something like that. It, it was. You know, the, hey. the timing was good for the reception it received. And I can understand why people would would, you know, would deliver these reviews because they're focused on the the broader content of the book and not so much the details like the terrible writing you're describing. And they see it as this is how the world feels right now. Everything feels like it's topsy turvy and there's no solid ground to stand on. And the characters in, in the book, because it is so similar to the film, are experiencing a world that's topsy-turvy where they don't understand what's going on and there's no solid ground that they can find. There's no purchase to grab onto. You know, so I, I, I mean, get it's, that. It's, co it's, coming, it's, out an emotional with, it's coming out with a vampire novel when we're in the midst of Twilight being popular. It's just yeah, good fucking timing. Except, yeah, except in the alternate reality where the, the where Twilight was popular because we were locked down because we were being attacked by vampires. <laughs> 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 and that also makes sense that, you know, the uh, the sense of isolation. All right, we're going to get too deep into this now. But the sense of isolation that you find in the film where there are no people 
and everybody's crammed into a house with your like, you know, with your with your, you know, safe bubble of of friends who are all vaccinated or are all like taking precautions, you know, so you can socialize safely with your little core group. Yeah, that this is making more sense now, actually, like why the movie is the way it is and why it feels so out of place in 2023. And Sean, I want to give you just a brief sense of the hacky writing that we're talking about and our, our listeners as well. Don't worry, it won't be a long quote, but it'll be a brief quote that encapsulates so much of it, where it's just this unnecessary use of adjectives for every fucking thing. So he's he's not going to be a long quote, but it's going to be a really long explanation about the quote. And it is... <laughs> shut up, Sean. Anyway... <laughs> You don't know. You weren't there. You didn't live through this book, Sean. Oh, it was tr- I, I've okay. lived through this experience over and over and over again, though. Okay. So, and Thank the you, other listeners. thing is that they that they fucking the the author shoehorns in just unnecessary and gratuitous descriptions of genitals and masturbation and stuff like that, and which is fine. Didn't you say that there's just, something in there? You you sent me a message about this. It's something about summer is for feeling horny or something like that. They say that several times or it's different <laughs> versions of it. It's so fucking, no, no, they say vacations are, are make you horny or something like it's like, and there, again, there's few, a handful of quotes. Uh, I, I went through, I have like 30 quotes in my notes here on different quotes that I can pull from. See, this is but, why I don't allow him to read books. Yeah. Anyway, so the uh, this this one, okay. So this one, it, it, he gets ideas. Again, it's, the the reason that they're shoe, I think the author is shoehorning this in is that like I think they're trying to be like real honest and edgy, and authors are just supposed to tell it like it is. Or again, it's it's a fucking middle schooler imagining what good writing is supposed to sound like, and and we end up with fucking Holden Caulfield saying curse words every other. Which, by the way, not a fan of that book while we're on the subject. I think it was also just as fucking happy. We weren't on the subject. You brought it up. The, it, it feels the, the like subject from, of hacky from, writing. I mean, from the excerpts that I've seen of the novel that I, that I did come across, it seemed like an amateur trying to emulate the style of Brett Easton Ellis. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Because totally. Somebody, like, it, it really just had that feel of like, you know, like I want to bring less than zero into my apocalyptic thriller. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, there's one thing that, um, it, it goes on for like a page or two of just literally listing fucking groceries that Amanda, the character that we're going to meet had purchased in the grocery store. In, it's very important in, in, in a novel to understand what everybody's shopping for. The whole chapter is uh, Okay. Two thirds of the chapter are Be, just because listing it all the comes back, and it's a very important plot device later on. The content of the shopping cart. No, it's not. None of it comes back. None of nothing in the whole fucking film comes back at any point ever. The the deer don't do anything. That nothing happens. Nothing right. happens. Okay, so you're here getting is ahead of yourself. Quote. Are you going to read this quote or not? Or this excerpt? I mean, okay. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. All right. Should we stop for a bite? Clay yawned at the end of the sentence, a strangled sound. I'm starving, Archie's hyperbole. Let's go to Burger King. Rose had spied the restaurant. Clay could feel his wife tense up. She preferred that they eat healthily, especially Rose. He could pick up her disapproval like sonar. 
It was like the swell that presaged an erection. They'd been married 16 years. What are you talking about, Alam? <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Those adjectives are awful. She spied the restaurant. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, dude. Shut the fuck up. By the way, that's chapter one. So I just, uh. and it, it's, it's like that throughout the whole thing. It's either listing shit or just describing, describing an Airbnb. It's, that's the whole book. I, so I, I think Jules like perpetually overcompensates and that's why he reads these terrible books. You know, I felt a little cringe because like there were some things where I'm like, this is so fucking bad. And then I had like reflected on some of my writing. I'm like, oh shit, I've done that before. That's really not good. <laughs> I'm, it's really just working development. The thing All right, because this show me, is about the movie and not about this book. Okay, so we're I wanna, going to move to I, the film now. All right. Well, before we do, I'm just gonna God. I'm just gonna cap this and say that the film is almost identical to the book. The exceptions are that pretty much any scene that has any action at all is an innovation from the screenwriter. The the names that are that are references to historical events, and we're going to get into that every single time that there's some kind of a reference that was all an innovation by the screenwriter or maybe Barack Obama. We don't really it's hard to say. And then the few other differences don't really amount to very much. For example, um, in the book, uh, uh, D.H. and Ruth, their last name was Washington. So he was actually George Washington as his actual name. And, and Amanda mentions it a couple times in the book, but uh, the, the themes kind of follow this impotent complaint about racism existing and climate change in the book, and, in the book. And then, okay. and then, and then society being dependent on and people heavily using communications technology, like cell phones and tablets and relying on and those things, GPS and, and, and relying on it. And that, but it's just, it's just Yawn. like an idle fucking complaint, but almost everything. When you watch the film, just be aware, unless there's an action scene, it's pretty much the exact same thing in the book. So we can really take this as the author's intent and the author. Well, and, and you get the, the switch over with the relationship uh, or with the dynamic with, uh, with GH and Ruth, because in the book it's his wife and not his daughter. Yes. So yeah, so it's his wife that, and that she's, an, an, she's an, they're both kind of a little bit older. They're more like, uh, uh, they're, they're more like, uh, uh, boomer in age and she's an older oh. woman and she's not fucking snarky like Ruth, the daughter is in the film. She's, she's not a, she's not a, basically she's not an asshole. All right. Back but on track. Onto the film. <laughs> I literally, like I wrote in the script a few brief words about the book and he fucking changed it and took out the word brief. <laughs> no, I wrote, well, okay. Well, okay. So anyway. <laughs> so a, a couple of things about the movie and then we'll get into the, the story itself and all the other thoughts we have about it. Even though this movie has only had a limited theatrical release, which I think is a Netflix tactic to get over any objections when things are considered by the Academy for an award. Uh, it is, it does feel like an actual movie. It feels like something that could be in a, that you could see in a theater. I mean, I've seen plenty of terrible movies in theaters. This feels like them. It doesn't have the same vibe as many Netflix or streaming films that are like just, 
so completely awkward and obviously written by an algorithm or a committee to meet the likes and dislikes of what they imagine their audience to be. That said, it, it does. It also has pretty, like very professional looking, practical and CGI special effects. But the CGI effects are professional, but like video game quality professional, like cutscenes in between missions in a game. And yeah. it kind of looks it looks very awkward on the screen when you see these CGI animals like the deer and the flamingos and stuff like that. They're very obviously animated. They do not look like they they fit, even though you can tell that effort has been made by the by the uh, by the special effects artists to match lighting and texture and things like that. The effort was there, but it just doesn't quite work. If it doesn't any look of the real. SFX were were actually of humans, there would be an uncanny valley. Yeah, you would know that it would be it would like, be like not a real person. It's, it would it, be real it, fucking it, jarring. But instead, it's it's like a ship or flamingos yeah. and shit. Yeah. Well, well, actually, you know where it comes in, where it works better is like you know with when it's talking about or when it when they're displaying inanimate objects like a plane or a ship, it actually works much better. You know the C- the CGI is is much more believable. It blends in with the the surrounding environment much the better. The deer was the one that was the most unbelievable. That like, was the most towards ridiculous. the end of the film where that that massive buck is like, like a fucking Disney coming movie. out they of the facial crowd expressions. towards the, It's just fucking. Bizarre. They had facial expressions. All right, as we imagined, or as we mentioned, this movie is all is wildly popular. That's why we're doing the episode. Plus, it just made me so angry when I watched it. Even if it wasn't popular, I would have wanted to do an episode about this film. But since it is popular, it's anything popular, irrelevant. as we know, is also fodder for conspiracy theory baking. All of this the- conspiracy theorizing has been fueled even further by the movie's connection to the Obama's production company, Higher Ground. If you remember, back in 2018, the Obamas signed a deal with Netflix for an undisclosed seven-figure amount to make a bunch of, of content for Netflix. So far, we've gotten a couple of movies like biopics. Um, we got Obama's series Working, which we'll talk about in a little bit, at least in passing. And now this. You know, this is the first one that was like a like a meant to be like a blockbuster. You know, the first higher kind ground of, sounds exactly like a a evangelical shell company. Like, well, it's, it's not that far off. You know, the, <laughs> yeah, because of all the the Obama connection and you know the the fixture that the 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 sort of a place that he holds as a need a fix in the minds of conspiracy theorists you cannot look for reviews of this film without coming across endless accusations of predictive programming and if you don't know what that term is that's basically like where the elite has is planning on is trying to prepare the population of the planet for what's to come and they do it, this through film it, you know and it, culture in general it is a a really important idea for conspiracy theory crowds, particularly on the far right, but in general, where they're they're looking for different ways to explain everything in reality, and they they want to connect it to fiction, literature, film, uh, music, whatever it is, uh, and and 
in order to explain it away, this really gives them this, this sort of carte blanche to, to be able to connect just about anything with anything else that they are trying to narrate in their idea of what the global cabal is doing these days with just about any song that you can imagine or any film or any TV series, because all they have to say is, well, what they're trying to do is condition us to be used to it, to get us used to it. So by the time that it, they implement their global plot, that we're, we're already just, just ready to, to take it down like a frog in boiling water. And that's a myth. They, that I was mean, made up. Frogs don't do that. I, I actually, honestly, I, I went to the grocery store today and standing outside the grocery store today of all days was somebody spending his, his New Year's Eve doing uh, such a positive and, and fruitful activity as he had this billboard out and had an image of frog in, in a pot of boiling water. That's why it was so on the top of my brain. And it said something like, uh, wake up, they're poisoning us or something like that. It was outside of a QFC, the grocery store in Seattle. And, uh, and he was like, have you, have you heard of, and I forget which bank it is, but some investment bank. And I was like, yeah, I've heard of it. I, I think, I think he said Charles Schwab. And, and I was like, yeah, I've heard of it. And he's like, uh, do you, do, do you know about, and he just said some other thing. I was like, oh, okay, got it. It's a fucking conspiracy theory, but they fucking love that frog and boiling water metaphor. They fucking love it. All right, you're, it you're, you're, you're blowing it all early. Save it. Save it. All right. <laughs> so anyway, Th this, what is, are the Obamas this is director. This is director Sam Esmail talking about what it was like working with Barack Obama. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the word producer means so many different things. Sure. You know, it could mean, you know, I threw money at the project. It could mean I'm famous and just want to put my name on it. Or it could mean I'm going to be on set and I want to be actively involved. When your producers are Barack and Michelle Obama, <laughs> do you have access to this? Like if you have a legit question, because honestly, when it comes to right. how to handle this sort of situation, a president would be a great source. Like, do yeah. you have the ability to pick up the phone and say, Listen, I do have legit questions to ask you about this movie. Look, I can't text him in the middle of the night if that's what you're asking. But um, Just because he's sleeping. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. Uh, he's a huge movie lover. Huge. And um, and I didn't quite know how how in-depth his movie knowledge was until I started talking to him. Um, and he's a huge fan of the book, and he really was committed to making this into a great movie. And... Um, he was, you know, he was giving me notes at the script stage, multiple drafts, including, you know, post rough cuts. Um, wow. He was really involved. And uh, and, you know, look, it's kind of a surreal like, I mean, because I do think he is one of the most brilliant minds on the planet sure. and to get his insight on this. And it wasn't just, you know, the disaster element stuff. It was the characters. It was theme. Um, it, it, he, it was a highlight of my career. What was the coolest? That, that will from now into the future be known as the Obama hand job. <laughs> no, no, no. The Obama handy. Leave the World Behind takes place in the shadow of New York City in the fictional Point Comfort Long Island. If you have a thing for filming locations, everything that happens in the film is essentially in or around Westbury, New York, or in the vicinity of so, spoiler alert, as we get into the film, we're going to absolutely wreck it for anybody who hasn't seen it. If you want to watch it, you know, proceed at your own risk if you don't care about spoilers or, you know, come back and listen to us after you uh, you endure this film. <laughs>
Clay Sanford, played by Ethan Hawke, wakes up to find his wife Amanda, played by Julia Roberts, throwing clothes around and packing suitcases. In a fit of what you can only consider to be late-night psychosis, she's booked a, an absolutely no-notice vacation for the entire family, them for the two of them and their two kids, at an Airbnb. Clay shows us right away what kind of hipster dad he is because he bizarrely has no problem at all with his wife's freakout. I mean, I think his response is, I'm always up for a little vacay. Which <laughs> that's it. All that's, right. What kind of an I, asshole says the word vacay? I mean, well, that, that that's firing that squad up quite a language. bit about the, the dialogue <laughs> that happens in this movie, too. You have Julia Roberts, uh, Amanda saying um, that she is donezo when she's had enough <laughs> wine to drink that night. Um, Clay another part asks where they her, say, are you down with that? Uh, Clay, yeah, Clay asks her, are you st- still down for burgers tonight? And she says, yeah, I'm down for that. It's terrible. It's fucking uh, cringy. So Julia Roberts. And by the way, hold on. I, I, I want to point out that scene doesn't exist in the book. The book opens with them in the car and describing how everybody is smelly and how uh, Clay opens the windows because of the farting children. So there, there's no fucking frantic Amanda. By the way, Julia Roberts plays Amanda. There's no frantic opening like that. Performances overall are fine. They're okay. Everybody shows up on time and reads their lines. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what else to say about this. They're, they're, nobody really stands out as... With with a stellar sort of performance, it, they're just all okay, which is really funny because at one point Sam Esmail referred to Julia Roberts as the Michael Jordan of acting, and I just I can't imagine like just, it just gives you it gives you a moment to to of pause to think about just what the world looks like through somebody else's eyes. <laughs> yeah, like I, I, because I I have never seen a single Julia Roberts film where I thought that was amazing. She really <laughs> sold it. Like I can I just I can't. I've seen other <laughs> actors per, per, deliver performances where I felt that way, but I've never thought about that with Julia Roberts. I've ne- I've never seen her in that light. Like she shows up, she's probably some, fine some, to work some with. Some people. Some people will go to see a film specifically because a certain actor is in that film and their their IMDb is just always fucking bangers. Well, with Julia Roberts, if I see her in it, I'm like, ah, it's probably going to be fucking dog shit. I'm good. I pass when I see Julia Roberts. And, and you know, Ethan Hawke is somebody who I enjoy on screen. I've I've seen him in other movies. I, I again, I think he's he's just fine. I, you know, I think he's he's de- definitely delivered in, you know, in some of his films. This particular character of Clay, though, there's something about it where it just doesn't seem like he's acting. It seems like this is kind of what Ethan Hawke might be like in real life. <laughs> you know, like the, the groovy, the chilled out his, hipster dad that wears band T-shirts you know, he sneaks cigarettes and, you know, he, and occasionally flirts with girls half his age. Like this is, it just seems natural. So either yeah. he's really good or he's just kind of being himself. Well, the thing is, so for, for what it's worth, uh, they are portraying the characters fucking on the nose. But I will, I will say it's one of those things where it's hard to tell if the script is just bad script writing and the actors are doing a phenomenal job with what they have. 
and their lines are just stupid and their characters are awful. Uh, or or if the actors are bad. And in this case, I think it's really just that the actors are are just hitting it on the nose. But with I mean, with uh, Hawk, with uh, with Clay, the sneaking, the smokes, the chilled out hipster dad uh, who's just just kind of fucking floating through life as a jellyfish in the in the sea, even though he's supposed to be a professor at City College. Fucking nailing it. He He's the professor with the with the little patches on on his on his jacket and he always forgets his raincoat and it his umbrella it's it's perfect it's fucking perfect but with with that the thing is the part where it mentions his cigarettes a couple of times they fucking beat you over the head with that in the book every other chapter is him feeling guilty about smoking cigarettes which is this sort of like Circa 1990s liberalism. See, this is why I didn't want you to read cigarettes. the book because you're going to keep hijacking it. I'm not <laughs> with minutia. <laughs> okay. So what what happens next, Sean? <laughs> In true 1980s uh, fashion, the name of the rental ad that they're uh, for the Airbnb that she that she has rented for the weekend is "Leave the World Behind." They said the name of the movie. Oh, there it is. <laughs> they got to do one of those horns. Doo, 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 doo. <laughs> After that very brief prelude in the apartment, setting up the entire the entire rest of the film, which evidently in the book, they don't even try to do. On the drive to the rental, we get the first glimpse of what's going to come, what, what the, the later action that's going to take place when the when young the, the youngest child, Rose Sanford's tablet, can't find a signal. Then, you know, like they, they check out the house. It's this beautiful monstrosity of completely soulless architecture, you know, the kind of thing where a bunch of smooth walls and big windows, you know, like everybody likes it. It's a it's a masturbation to minimalism. It, it is. Yeah, it, it is the worst of the architectural and home renovation trends that we've seen, you know, out of the 2010s to the 2020s. It basically it is the culmination of all the worst, you know, better home and garden channel <laughs> type of renovations. You know, then we get it. We get the first glimpse of Kevin Bacon when Amanda goes shopping and she sees a guy loading up with supplies. Now, because I've seen the whole film, you're going to get this sort of like time skipping around. I mean, Jules has already done it a few times. There are a lot of Easter eggs in this movie. Some of them I trailed down, some were just obvious, and others I just couldn't be bothered because putting Easter eggs in films like this, it is one of the most tedious habits that a director can have where you just drop a bunch of things and then you expect your audience to be so invested in your your just perfect product that they're going to go out and research all these things themselves. And that's I, I think it's terrible. It really talks to this sort of like snarky kind of it's fucking ostentatious john it's ostentatiousness taken to the next fucking level it, it's really talking to this overeducated with trivia crowd that just that feels good because they know some of this stuff off the top of their head so kevin bacon's truck he's loading it up with you know with big packages of water and all kinds of other and a bunch of a bunch of other like prepper type supplies, which really throws into question like how much of a prepper this guy actually is because he has to go buy this at the local farm store. He doesn't just have it already. You know, he didn't order <laughs> it from Alex Jones. 
Um, <laughs> but the side Which of his comes truck, in a barrel from Alex Jones. If you're, you know, well, he had barrels in the really back is- of his pickup truck. You know, he, he had the big tubs <laughs> like you'd see Jim Baker selling. He, uh, the side of his work truck says Comanche something or other as the name of the business. I don't know what this means, but it's there. And Esmail or somebody involved in the production, Obama himself, was probably nodding to something ambiguous at like the genocide of the Native Americans or cultural appropriation or something like that. And obviously, both of those are incredibly important topics, but they, much like many of the other Easter eggs in the film, have absolutely no connection to anything going on in the story. No connection. On that so note, I don't, I don't the, know the, what Comanche means on the side, but it's clearly visible in the shot, and I'm sure it's there for a reason. I I can I can speculate on that because I have read about this before. There oh, is so he's creepy- one of those overeducated with trivia people that I was telling you about. <laughs> you know, I recently got into Jeopardy. So the, All right, let's uh, let's, the, let's, the, let's no, just keep I, going. Let uh, this is yeah. Let's just keep going. Let's plow on through. There's so much to get through here. We can't stop on everyone. I, we we won't, but I do want to say, Sean, the the Comanche and Apache thing and a number of others are names for various military vehicles in in the, the U.S. Uh, 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 forces, and those are an allusion to conquered, uh, or I guess I don't I don't know if conquered, but basically dominated groups that have been uh, uh, victims of genocide by the United States. And and that is that is I think the connection that they're trying to make there. And like I said, I, it I doesn't it fucking relevant. matter though. It doesn't it has it's, nothing it's, to do with anything. And it's not even it's not even relevant yeah. to the to it, where it, the plot is going. Let alone this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where Amanda brings back the pack of cigarettes for Clay, and he immediately says, "Those aren't mine." My heart just sort of warmed at that moment because I knew about the the I knew about that higher ground was and the Obamas were part of this. And I could just imagine Michelle Obama finding a pack of cigarettes in one of Barack's coats or something <laughs> like that or, or underneath the, whatever Oprah book of the month club he's reading and just saying, like, do you know anything about this? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, Michelle, uh, I was, I was just visiting my friend and, uh, she said, hold on to this packet of cigarettes for me. So I, I just wanted to hold on to them. I was holding them just for a time, just for my friend. They're not my cigarettes. <laughs> but this is the, this is exactly the kind of thing that it passes for character development in this movie. Like we're supposed to know so much about these people or maybe Esmail doesn't even bother. You know, maybe he's like, he doesn't even, you know, like consider doing character development, but this is how we get to know them and like what kind of people they are, what they're capable of so that later on we can have those, you know, those conceptions of them challenged or verified or the characters can transform into something new. You don't just a spoiler alert. You get none of that. You get none we don't of even that attention to, like to the detail. Characters. There's, there's no reason for us to like them. Every, everybody's there just as a vehicle for this sort of like high-handed smug uh, lecturing that goes on in the movie. It's it's there. There's no people in the in it. They're they're all cutouts that are just meant to propel along whatever you know whatever uh, moral story that they want the that the Esmail and and you know the author of the original book want to want to push on you. I, I really thought about that a lot, and I am convinced that 
that uh, both Amanda and Clay are two different variations on Alam himself. And, and, and that, and then he's, he's just expressing different sides of himself at different points where he's the fucking smug, chill professor, uh, which drippingly comes across. And uh, then the, the other, by the way, his, his degree is in writing in creative writing or something like that. So fucking, of course it is. And, uh, then Amanda is this wine drunk mom uh, who is, is, uh, uh, just so concerned about making sure that she buys organic foods and that the, that the green beans are snappy. And uh, I think that the other characters are also way more ornamental where, uh, well, we need, we need, we need a couple of black people in here in order to make my point about race relations. And then they just become these fucking accessories to, to the narrative. So the whole family packs into the car and goes to the beach off in the distance, this is where we get like another inconsistency in the film about with the character development or what the, the, the underlying message of the entire story is meant to be. The daughter Rose is, they're all sitting there and the daughter Rose is, is fixated on this oil tanker in the distance. Clay, the, the dad is, you know, sort of like, oh yeah, you know, mentions it. That's it. And then she says it's getting closer. And you look up and like, not only is it closer, but it is like, it's really moving. You know, it has covered a lot of distance in a very short period of time. It looks like it's going something insane, like 40 knots or something. I, I, I mean, it is just, it's basically like flying speed. across the water. So the movie's telling us that with that little interchange, if this was a real movie that was, you know, good, it, it's telling us, it, would, it could be telling us that, oh, we're supposed to pay attention to the children because they're more connected to the surrounding events. And these adults are distracted by, you know, the details of their lives and all this stuff because she's the one that notices it. And the parents are the ones that disregard it as the, the tanker gets so close that it's impossible to, to ignore any longer. They jump up and run out of the way and the tanker goes aground onto the beach. And then you see clearly on the side, the name of the tanker. This is, it is... This is another Easter egg already. We're so we're barely into this movie and we have another another drop, basically. I mean, really thinking of them as Q drops is not wrong. The ship is named White Lion. This wasn't one that I knew, but I was curious. So it turns out this is the same name as the English ship that brought the first African slaves to the Virginia colony. It is also one of the first reference, or one of the the first among many references to historic racism. And if Jules is on the on the money with the Comanche comment on the truck, you know it's the second one. Um, none of these references are ever discussed by any characters at any point. Like that really needs to be understood, you know. So it's sort of like the movies whispering to you constantly, racism's everywhere, but then it doesn't do anything to address it. There's no it just keeps reminding you. It's just it's like just, this. It's just this whining about it. At the end of the movie, we get another dose of that. We'll get to it then. And there's a few along the way. Um, along with many other questions. <laughs> Why did this ship run aground? Why is there no crew that can possibly steer this ship? Because the only explanation we get is that from a police officer or security guard that Clay speaks to, who, by the way, he's the only one that taught that asks any questions of this uniformed official as they're all exiting. All these people are exiting the beach. <laughs> Nobody else is like everybody's passively walking like like cattle into a slaughterhouse. 
Clay is the only one that says, hey, what's going on around here, guys? And <laughs> the 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 officer, security guard, whatever says, oh, you know, it's happening all up and down the coast, something with the navigation systems. There is a crew on these ships. There, uh, there tur- are hands. Tur- turns out you captain. don't necessarily need navigation systems to see the shore. And why they didn't, dis- <laughs> I mean, yes, the, these these like tankers and freighters that go across the ocean, they have they have autopilots, but it's not like you, they have ultimate control over the vessel. We don't, there are no autonomous ships at sea. Yeah. You know, other than in the, those in the experimental phase. So I don't, it's like they didn't do any research. It's like they didn't look into any of this stuff and they like, see like, is this even real or how does this work? There is so little attention to detail that it's infuriating. Another one and that not, I picked. I'm not the the sort of like um, Tyson sort of figure, you know, who wants to tell you like, oh, you know, this that's not how you know, like oh, human, Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's not well, how the, people the would behave would have in been, space. Uh, up up you your know? ass in this yeah, particular scene. Yeah, I, like I, I don't <laughs> get. On, I like I'm cool with suspension here. of disbelief, but not when it's just like so sloppy or like, like minutia of details. Like, all right, whatever. If the stars would have been here and there, who gives a shit? But and, and uh, you there, know, and there, even if even if there were autonomous ships. What would the the name the, a ship named White Lion have to do with them? There, like slavery is trying to kill you. Like slavery is coming for white people. What does it mean? White people who use uh, uh, Facebook, I guess, probably TikTok, most likely. Yeah. But well, all right. So they're and they're also at. This is one that I caught that I hadn't read anywhere as I was reading the various uh, uh, conspiracy theorists blogs and listening to their podcasts. The, uh, they're at Charleston Harbor, which is uh, it was it was a huge port of entry for slave ships during during the peak of chattel slavery and the transatlantic slave trade, and it was like responsible for forty percent or something like that of of the uh, 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 I don't know if shipments is the word I don't know what word to fucking use for this awful event, but. Uh, that 40% of, of, of incoming slaves were through that port specifically, it was the number one port. So the fact that they were, they mentioned Charleston Harbor in the film is another reference that while we're on the subject, not in the book and the, and then, the, and then they leave the beach and they, they just let they, it go. They, it's like just, totally forgotten. It is literally not mentioned for like another half an hour. And then just in passing, like, oh, yeah, we saw this crazy thing earlier. You know, like it is it is barely is just brushed off. And Amanda says, oh, a Starbucks, which is, oh, my God. You know just- what? Actually, they they beat you over the head with this this snide attitude towards social media and the Internet and communication devices and technology in general, but specifically communications techno- technology, where um the uh amanda makes some snarky fucking remark that that's just okay we get the moral of the story guys all right you the metaphor is fucking clear she says something like um uh oh the the kids don't even acknowledge it it's 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 like they've moved on to the next episode in the tv film it's like oh yeah that's exactly okay. what she says and in fact I okay, have that Amanda. I have that just down next in my notes it's like oh, like a, it, it's like like it's a TV show on to the next episode and again the inconsistency because we were just told in the earlier scene 
that Rose, the youngest, the youngest child, is the one to pay it, that that is noticing things. And this gets reinforced when Rose sees all the deer and nobody else see the deer. We're sp- again, if you're paying attention to a film, you should be you should be learning that oh, the the children are the ones that are that have the insight here. They're the ones that are noticing these changes, and the adults are oblivious to them. But then we have the adults saying, "Oh, the the kids are oblivious." There, there, there is this back and forth where where both Alam and and the 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 screenwriter, both of them, Esmail, Esmail, they they both they can't fucking pick a direction with what their point about children is. The, the throughout the whole book and also the film, they kind of make it off as if uh, children are stupid and aloof and self-centered and, and they have a uh, total obliviousness of the world around them because they're uh, they're, they're all caught up in their social media. And it, like, it's this fucking grouchy attitude from, from your old uncle or something. And then at the same time, in both works of fiction, they make it out as, uh, as, uh, uh, that they are actually the ones that are seeing the things that the adults don't see. Uh, if there's a, there's a line that is a throwaway line that Alam says somewhere in the book where he's like, uh, uh, children notice things that adult adults don't or some, something like that. That's it's exactly like, my point because the, but they can't make up their mind about what the message is. Yeah, are it the children oblivious and, and self-centered, or and 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 they've they've got their heads crooked down like uh, some kind, <laughs> some kind kind of grasshopper with their cell phones, or do they see everything that the adults don't see? Fucking which is it? With all of this dynamic between these Gen Xers and Zoomers, if only there was a character right in the middle of those ages, <laughs> just someone. Somebody who we could listen to who's no longer naive and childish, but isn't quite yet complacent and cynical. (laughs) We need a young, angry millennial to help us figure this all out. (laughs) So why don't you talk about this next section? Okay, cool. This is where the Scots show up. Then we get the Scots showing up in the book. They're the Washingtons. And we have two people. There's GH, George, and I have no idea what the H stands for. Horatio. No middle name given. No, in either. Uh, and his daughter, Ruth, show up. And Jeez uh, uh, ex- explains that this is his house. Before they show up, Amanda starts freaking out immediately. Like this, this paranoid, hysterical, I hear a noise. I hear a noise, Clay. There's a noise. And this is true in both. The, and, and yeah, there, there is a noise, but she immediately goes to there's some kind of fucking home invaders as as the first thought when you hear a noise. So we, we get the sense of Amanda's freak, her her total paranoia and on edge behavior right out of the gate. And uh, so anyway, th- then there's a knock at the door and, and GH uh, says, hey, uh, uh, this is our house. You're you're renting it from us. This is our BNB. And he explains that, uh, well, uh, there was a blackout in the city and we just, we were on the way to the city from, uh, going to the, uh, the, the symphony and they're, you know, they're dressed up in, in very nice clothes for, for the symphony, obviously. Yeah. He's and, wearing a tuxedo and she's wearing an evening gown. Yeah. And, and, come on, uh, Jules, come on. You got to give those details. You can't just say nice clothes. 
it's, it's, a, it's a fucking tuxedo. <laughs> uh, so, and and uh, uh, Amanda's like, oh, well, well, you know, what's what's the deal here? This this can't be true. And then she, uh, uh, they they kind of elaborate on the explanation a little bit, and then Amanda says, I need to talk to Clay alone. And when she's ex- articulating this with with Clay, and this is in the book too, uh, she's like. Well, we we don't know that this is true. Like maybe it's a maybe it's a con of some kind so that they can come in here and rape us and murder us and and that sort of a thing. GH has the keys to the cabinet. There's this cab this liquor cabinet. Uh and he has the keys to that and it's clear that that GH absolutely owns this place. And they they've obviously never stayed in a vacation rental before because her big her, her like the the one piece of missing evidence she needs for to establish their ownership is family photos. And yeah. anybody who's ever <laughs> stayed in a vacation home knows there are no family photos. These environments are totally depersonalized in the same way that there's no fucking family photos in a hotel room. Like it is not it is meant to be a neutral space for somebody to rent. And then we get our first hint of the obvious underlying racism but not so overt that it's fucking white hoods and kkk but pretty fucking clear well yeah she says that when when she, when she says that they could be a con she says oh he could be the handyman she could be the housekeeper yeah yeah and that's straight from alam like they didn't change a fucking thing <laughs> and you know so then you know we get uh, we get another easter egg uh, you know, they're talking about the power. <laughs> There's so the, fucking many. They're talking about the signal being out on the internet and they're talking about the television not working. And then, you know, you have the characters like flipping channels and it's just all the emergency broadcast. And as of course, as soon as no one's watching, the TV suddenly has a signal for a moment and we can see a heat map from CNN showing us the severity of the internet and communications disruption. The Chiron says cyber attack across the country. Well, deep in there, in the middle, hidden somewhere around Ohio is a QR code, you know, because it blends in with the colors of the heat map and the pattern and everything. So the QR code evidently links to a website for Mercer County uh, and a location specifically uh, is the Lake Shawnee Abandoned Amusement Park, which is... Uh, which is said to be one of the most haunted places in the country. And it's supposedly even built on an ancient Native American gravesite. So yes, that is an old Indian burial ground. <laughs> hey, you know what? If we're bringing back 80s movies. <laughs> and we, what we this has it. to do with anybody or anything in this film is ne- there's nothing. There's nothing that's ever referenced to it. Native Americans are never mentioned as a as a class or as a group. Um, there is, what does it have to do with anything? It's, and honestly, these Easter eggs, I, like, how would anyone know, you know, somebody went, somebody with more time in their hands than me went through, went through the trouble of finding a, a high definition copy of this film so that they could scan this goddamn QR code with their phone so that they could go and find this website. It I, took me, it took me like two instances of looking for the QR code when I knew that there was a QR code because it is I, that I had to buried. pause it a couple a couple of times to even see it at all. Next morning, Amanda sees notifications on her phone, and she has just enough time to read them before they disappear. Again, attention to detail. Whose phone has ever done that? 
whose phone has notifications that clear on their own without you swiping them off the screen. It, it, one thing that is different then, in the and even one then, thing, there's a history of notifications that's stored on the phone that you can go look at. There, one thing that is different in the film is that on those notifications, the only thing in the book is they they mention a blackout in a couple of things, and then there's uh, some gibberish as the as the last one, same as in the film. But the one that is in the film is the mention to a hacker attack. Mm-hmm. That is not, and and we're going to see this pop up throughout the film. Where no, that's Obama's contribution. Specific, that's fucking predictive Obama programming. And, that's and, coming. Obama yep. and, and and the elite have this in the works. It's it's going to happen. <laughs> Clay goes on a drive to go find more information. A newspaper, he says, which is that's just fucking hilarious. Um, but then <laughs> he also says he's going to go see if he can find somebody to talk to who might know something. Which brings us to another very strange point about this film. Where the fuck is everybody? The film never answers this question. You literally only see two other people that are not in this house in the entire film. There is nobody else. And that is really odd because where they are, they are surrounded by vacation homes. It is summertime. That's when people are on vacation. Yeah. These are all summer homes. And- you know, so there were all these people, these cars in the parking lot of the of the the supermarket where Amanda went in the beginning and saw and first saw, you know, um, what's his name? The uh, Kevin Bacon's character, Danny. Danny. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where she sees Danny, Danny the contractor. Just, there's cars in the in the parking lot, but you don't see the people, but there's cars. So, you know, there are people. But at this point, you'd see nobody on the road. You see no other, no vehicles, no people out on the street, no, no nothing. And, you know, so we get to see the one other, you know, one of the uh, other two people other than Danny that are in this movie that do not live, are not staying in this house. And it happens to be a woman that is Spanish speaking only. Why this is like the issue about no other people is is really significant because this is all taking place on Long Island, which is one of the most populated islands in the world. There's like 18 million people on the on Long Island. <laughs> like it doesn't it just doesn't make any sense. You know, there are some rural areas and some like sm- like small towns, quote unquote, but these small towns are only small because of how the lines are drawn, not because of population density. And there's farms and, that's, and, that's, and stuff and like that. And that's the opening scene where Amanda talks about how, oh, it's 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 just outside of the city, but it's basically desolate. It's basically isolated is what she gets at. It is rural, but it's not uninhabited. <laughs> you know, yeah. There's a lot of people there. It's not fucking White Plains. This is the next bit of character mismanagement because Clay, who was like totally cool and easygoing when the strangers showed up and wanted to sleep in the house that he and his family had rented. And and again, they're they're not bunking up together where, where they're no, going to no, be no, in what, the top what, bunk. They're, no, they're, no, in, hold on. they're in the That's fucking not my guest point, room. Though. That's not yeah. my point, though. My point yeah. is that he is totally cool with this and trying to talk Amanda down. But yet when he's out on the road and there's a woman who obviously is asking for help, pleading with him, he drives away and leaves her. This doesn't make any sense. This is not yeah. the same person. Yeah. You know, like he he's he's behaving in totally incongruously with the character that's been developed so far. He's the yeah. easygoing guy. He was easygoing with the crazy vacation plan. He was easygoing with the strangers showing up to stay the night. He's the mellow one. And then he yeah. ditches the lady on the road. Now, if Amanda had done it, it would have made sense. But they didn't have Amanda do it because they don't give a shit about the characters. 
you know, so we get the other Easter egg. Oh God, there's a couple of them here. Jesus. <laughs> um, I, I'm bored even relating these things. So we get a sign that Clay drives by called Tanny Farms. Well, it turns out Robert Tanny is a Supreme Court just uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice, and was uh, he ruled with the majority in the Dred Scott decision that African slaves could not be considered citizens, and Congress is not allowed to outlaw slavery. All right. And in the book, uh, so again, this is another innovation. In the book, it's McKinnon Farms. Yeah, I don't know who did this, but somebody did it. Well, yeah, it's McKinnon Farms in the book, and I think it might be McKinnon Farms in real life, you know, because it's a real. There's a real filming location. It's a real farm. Then Clay sees drones that are dropping flyers. We find out later on that the flyers are are these red flyers. They kind of look like gas in the distance, like a crop duster. But yeah. as the as it gets closer, you can tell that they're leaflets. We find out later they're covered in Arabic writing, and the the son can read it because of a video game that he saw. It says death to America. Which people also, have gone through on, translating fucking bullshit. Like all people right. have gone through, uh, people have gone, taken the time to translate all of this, but I don't care. I'm not going to repeat the translation. It doesn't matter. And then you mentioned, but, but, but you Archie, know, I mean, Archie, Archie being able to, to, to look at, at, at Arabic, not being somebody who we can intuit is speaking Arabic at all. And, and well, it's actually not Arabic. It's actually Farsi. I miss, I misspoke. It's not Arabic. It's Farsi, but still. Well, either way, this, this, uh, uh, very different kind of writing. He's able to just recognize it. Cause he, he saw it in a, in a video game. Get the Death fuck out of here. Come on. Yep. I mean, like, <laughs> like, it, like I would be able to recognize Chinese, char Chinese characters uh, because I saw one example of it once in a video game. There's no, if you there's see no it enough, way. Get they kind of look out of here. I don't know if they, if you see them enough, they do look familiar and you can, you don't necessarily, you can't read it, but you recognize this expression as a, as a symbol that represents the translation because right, you've been fair. told what it means. Um, but then the radio station, you saw this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the radio station was, so it came on for a second. Uh, Clay is outside of the car and, uh, and you see it blip on for a second and give some kind of an, uh, an announcement about attacks or something like that. And, and then it says 1619 is, oh is the, God. is the radio station number, which again, it, he's just being a fucker about this. It, the, he's just really beating you over the head with these little Easter eggs. All right, so we have we have another clip here too. This is the, this is the other aspect of this, and you, you people might be wondering why you know why am I associating any of this stuff with neoliberal things? Well, this is why, because one of the main aspects of neoliberalism is the financialization of society, and and one of the ways that 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 comes about that we can actually like you know lay our hands on is how we relate to something like the stock market, which is obviously a completely human invention. We've, um, we imagined it into existence. This is not a force of nature. You know, just like the economy is not a force, is not part of nature. We've, but Sean, we've it's driven by God and the people who are rich are there because it's God's will. Come on, haven't you been reading the right. prosperity yes, yes, gospels? Jules is the Keynesian of the group. <laughs> Here it is. I saw it, you know, a while ago before all this happened. I looked at the market and I knew something was coming. What do you mean? 
In my line of work, you have to understand the patterns that govern the world. You have to learn how to read the curve. Spend as long as I have doing it, it can help you see the future. It holds steady, promises harmony. It inches up or down, you know that means something. G.H., why, why are you telling me this? So here we have G.H. as the Delphic Oracle, Oracle reading chicken bones that have been thrown on the ground. And we have the stock market as this divinely inspired predictor of the future. He's basically being presented as fucking John Galt from Atlas Shrugged here. I mean, this is this is a Randian depiction of those who are are the leaders of capital. And this is this is so fucking fitting for the neoliberal attitudes that are expressed in the book and in the film that are are the through line throughout the whole thing, which is that they're they're so smart and they're so clever and they can see it coming and they can read the fucking chicken bones. And for some reason, now we see a whole lot of deer. We don't know why that no thing is ever explained about this. It's just craziness and people so, being expected when, when to figure crazy, out crazy what's going happen, on. Animals migrate or something, which doesn't explain why, why flamingos would be migrating north to a oh, fucking colder region. <laughs> but the next, but, and, and right after the deer, we get this high pitched noise that everybody can hear. And you know, this, the just absolutely deafening. They're all covering their ears. And we're, we're, we, we have no explanation for this whatsoever until later on when we talk to Danny and he's like, oh, you know, Havana syndrome. And this is basically every review that talks about that high pitched noise talks about Havana syndrome as if that was a real thing. It as was total was, fucking bullshit. Come on. Get the as fuck if out that of was here. an actual. And in fact, you know, one of the articles that I read on, on, on MSN you know, what caused the loud noise and leave the world behind. And it is literally says, just like the real life Havana syndrome. That's what the <laughs> quote says. That's some fucking lazy journalism. If I, if I ever, I, I, I guess if, if you're still in that camp, anybody listening that, you know, thinking that Havana syndrome is not something that's been totally like a totally psychogenic illness. That's been cooked up by a bunch of socio sociopathic foreign service officers. Then, Maybe check out Robert Bartholomew, you know, just Google it, you know, like learn, learn more. While, while we're on the subject, what were those dickheads doing in Havana in the first place? So just, just, just visit that for a second. Now, I guess it's kind of like playing on quasi, okay, so it's, it's quasi playing on real technology, which is directed energy weapons, but it, it to a really fucking fitch, fictional extent, but the connection with Havana syndrome is just straight up democratic party bullshit. But you know, the thing about this though, is that this is like liberal conspiracy theorizing in the same way that like, you know, it's this sort of fixation on very specific types of things, you know, like uh, um, characterizing the, the threats that we face in the world or the rather that, that, that are that exist between nations as something that is is boiled down to a contest between two countries where you know rather than us being at the center of the you know the core of this empire this economic and and military empire that is exerting its 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 uh its influence around the planet and 
all of the stuff that's happening in this movie is basically shit we've done to other countries. It's it's ripped straight out of the fucking playbook of Henry Kissinger and the Dulles boys. We have destabilized one nation after another with exactly the same kind of mentality that they're expressing as a as a fear of something that might happen to us. You know, one nation. I mean, think about the regimes that have been toppled around the country. And even, I mean, like just you could leave Iraq and Afghanistan out of it because that was overt military action. Think about all the others where we didn't put troops on, you know, into these foreign countries where we just we we used uh, psychological warfare. We used political maneuvering to encourage and finance oppositions that didn't ex- previously exist. One thing think that about is Reagan always bothered- and the think about Reagan and the Sandinistas. So with the Iran-Contra affair, one thing that's always fucking bothered me about that is that it it made headlines. It was a scandal. Although everybody pretty much got off scot free, except for um, Oliver North, maybe. Uh, but uh, for the most part, it 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 was something that was very widely publicized and in the American consciousness until it took you know, another decade for everybody to fucking forget, and then it's in the history books. But what bothered me, and still to this day bothers me most about the Iran Contra affair, is that that was the most doodly dink fucking nothing of the bullshit that we're getting up to in foreign affairs, the kind of toppling of regimes that we've been getting up to in the 20th century and beyond. And, and the kind of direct imperialism that we're doing via the CIA and a number of other different, uh, alphabet agencies, uh, again, the Dulles boys, you know, <laughs> uh, this, strikes me as something that in the American consciousness, they see this and they say, oh my God, this controversy is an anomaly. This happens once every great while, and this is an exception. And I think, I think that there's this idea that's presented from that, that scandal as if this is the one. And that one was the most rinky dink of them. That was the, was the less, the lesser of them. And it's one of, fucking 200 or something like that or 100 i don't know one of many and that's what bothers me most about that you just spent all that time talking about the iran contra affair (laughs) i well what i'm saying is that this is this is this is something that we do and have done for uh over 150 years as our main mo as um, since since the marshall plan and and say that (laughs) <laughs> and, so, and so what's bo- so bothersome about this to me is is the idea that maybe it happens once in a while as a goof. So we're going to jump around for a little bit because some things have come, you know, some things come up that are, you know, they're better looked at in connection than just piecemeal. Archie and Rose are walking through the woods. They are in a shed anyway. You know, stuff happens. It's unimportant. And Archie gets bit by a tick. Within 24 hours, he is so sick that he starts losing his teeth and puking blood. In an interview, again, never explained. And in an interview, Esmail is asked about, like, what the hell happened to Archie? What is this thing that happened to him? And he totally brushes it off that, you know, that Archie is, is shown to get so sick. And what meanwhile, nobody else has any symptoms. Now, everybody's been exposed to this noise. Everybody's been exposed to the same environment. The only difference is that Archie was bit by the tick. 
And Esmail's explanation is that, quote, this movie's a nightmare. And I think that in nightmares, things happen that are inexplicable. So there, there it is. That is the underlying ethos of the entire film is crazy shit happens. And I have no responsibility to explain it just like you were dreaming. Yeah, it's, it's such fucking lazy writing. That's really what it is. Because the tick is the only exception here. That's what's, you know, what's what makes me think and, you know, quite a few other people think that th- this is the movie giving at least tacit legitimacy to the Lyme disease conspiracy. This is a conspiracy theory that Lyme disease, you know, which was first identified in Lyme, Connecticut, was actually developed on Plum Island in New York as a tick-borne bioweapon. Which as, as, as somebody who spends way too much time reading and listening to conspiracy theorists, I've never heard of this conspiracy theory until it's an this. old one. It's not an it's not a new one, but it is back now thanks to this <laughs> fucking movie. Conspiracy TM classic. You know, just like every other really tidy conspiracy theory where you can say like, "Oh, well the, there were Nazis working in this in this research lab and yeah, the, the 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 doctor that identified the bacteria that causes Lyme disease, it's named after him and he worked at that lab and all these other things that are like, you know, just so tight the way that they fit together and like that make you that allow you to think this is what happened. The US developed it, you know, just like an X-Files episode. Except, you know, it's always at the details that where these where the problems come up and you have to ignore quite a bit of stuff. In this case, you have to ignore that the bacteria that causes Lyme disease has been found in preserved mite samples that go back to the 1800s. I mean, I mean, even even back to the 1700s, I think. Right. Well, th- like you have descriptions of symptoms that match Lyme disease, which is a l- obviously, you know, a less less solid bit of evidence that go back to the 1700s. But in the 1800s, there are there are still I mean, this is something crazy to think about that there are labs that have maintained samples that are that old of dead mice that you can still go (laughs) and like, you know, like stick a syringe in and put it under a microscope, you know, where you can see (laughs) the same bacteria that causes Lyme disease present in the 1800s. So So we we take a sample from Mickey Mouse and we find out, it turns out it's been a thing for a fucking while, but we didn't see it until the seventies in any meaningful way. And that's when it, that's when it was first, you know, seriously really investigated clinically. And the reason that it was named after the guy at the lab is because he's the one that identified it. You know, he's the one that sp- and then they went back and looked at old samples from the region and they found it. They found further evidence of it. But these are all the things you have to ignore to make your little pet conspiracy theory make sense. And the film doesn't, you know, because of its, you know, it's really like you know, no hands on the wheel approach to, to facts and causes of things. And, you know, like a sequence of events that makes rational sense. They, they, they go about encouraging this stuff. (laughs) Jesus, take the wheel, a guide to script writing volume one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. There's, there's another one with the, with the fucking Teslas, which again, not in the book. Not in the book. If there's action, if anything's being exploded or crashing or mildly entertaining for a moment. Well, this is one of three action scenes in the whole movie. Maybe Uh, four. If you count Clay driving on the road away from the from the plane with the leaflets, you know, like then then, then that would be four. You know, you. Well, all right. Hold on. You have GH with the plane crash. 
You we have, have the, clay on the road. You have I, the tanker, or you have the uh, hold, oil hold tanker. On. I'm gonna, That's I'm three. Gonna, Sean, I'm going to listen in order really quick. I already have them written down. The oil tanker, any plane crashes, uh, there are two. Uh, reports of terrorism in the news. You only see one plane crash, though. You only see one, but there's evidence of the second. But neither of those are in the book. All right. But that's interesting. It's more interesting than whatever the fuck is happening in the book. Um, the plane after uh, the, the plane dropping the flyers that didn't exist. The flyers themselves, the, the gun standoff with Danny a little bit later. We're going to mention that uh, that doesn't fucking happen. The deer intimidating Amanda and Ruth. Again, we're going to talk about that. The Tesla's and actually, we're, we're gonna, not going to talk about that, <laughs> but we've talked about the deer. I don't care about the mama bear scene. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it doesn't matter. Ba- basically, the deer intimidate Amanda and Ruth. It's fucking stupid. It's so fucking stupid. Uh, and then there's Tesla's and then there's three others. Uh, the bitten by the tick, the the joke about the but that's not action. That. That's a tick bite. That's not action. All right. So anyway, these are the anything that's interesting or fun or exciting in any way. All innovations in the movie. So you want to talk about the Teslas? Can you do it briefly? I do. Oh, I can. Well, we'll see. But I, I will no, try. no, no. Not <laughs> I'm kidding. No, I will. So the Teslas. So with the Teslas, we we see the family. They're they're trying to leave the house. They're trying to go back to New York, uh, mainland, and uh, all these Teslas start crashing. And Amanda figures out, oh, they're they're self driving. And even fucking Elon Musk in a tweet was like, oh, looks good or something. He said, Teslas can charge from solar panels, even if the world goes fully Mad Max and there's no more gasoline, exclamation point. Totally missing what the fucking scene is about that was posted by about Netflix. About automatic <laughs> driving Teslas run amok. Used as a weapon by indescript terrorists. All that, all that brings into question that, like, do companies actually look at product placement when they cash those checks and they make those agreements <laughs> with movies? Because Musk obviously didn't even watch the clip he was replying to. Ugh. <laughs> Which fucking gem. But then a little bit, a little bit after that, I mean, fucking speaking of the global cabal. GH in the film only he describes this this client that he has that's this mysterious client that's extremely powerful and he says something like oh uh, if you heard his name you'd know him but I can't tell you who it is but you'd get it if I said it getting back to the to the real meat of this neoliberal fantasy we find out that nobody's really in charge why did you really come here and don't tell me it's because of your knee. That wasn't a lie. I did have any surgery. Twisted it up pretty bad, playing ball down at the Y. But it's not why you came here. Why I came here involves something that happened to me a few years back. One of my clients invited me and my wife to a private event. My client, he, well, I won't say his name, but You'd recognize it, though. Is he a celebrity? I don't know. Nothing like that. But in the business world, he's one of the biggest out there. He deals mostly in defense contracting. I'm talking hush-hush, top-secret money from the Pentagon. Perhaps the most powerful person I've ever had a meal with. Anyway, we are at this soiree at his house. It's getting late. My wife, she wants to go. He and I are just having a blast. And he doesn't want the night to end. 
after a few more glares, my wife agrees to take a cab and I'll come home after. Mm, I bet she was real happy about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're having a few more drinks, getting really sauced. And at one point, I, I don't think he could stand and I was pretty wobbly myself. I wouldn't know anything about that, sir. <laughs> so he takes me to his study, smoke a few cigars, and we're sort of flying high, laughing at almost everything. Eventually he starts in how much he likes me and how he wishes he could invite me on this trip he's about to go on. What 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 kind of trip? Where's he going? That's exactly what I asked. And he turns to me serious face and he says oh you know just my annual meeting with the rest of the evil cabal that runs the world <laughs> he was the kind of guy that was always known for jokes like that again if i told you his name you'd understand well i just have to take your word for it and now if you'll excuse me i'm gonna top off my life then, yesterday before the symphony, my friend calls me up. No scheduled appointment like he usually does, just calls me out of the blue. He wants me to move around some of his money. And we're talking some big numbers, even for him. And as we're getting off the phone, I asked if he wanted to grab a drink. He tells me he's going away for a while. I joke back to him. Well, yeah. You hanging with your evil cabal this weekend? Thought that was only during the winter solstice. That <laughs> he doesn't laugh. And he always laughs, even with bad jokes. The only said was, take care of yourself. Almost as if he felt sorry for me. Ever since I haven't been able to get it out of my head. Are you saying, are you thinking that your friend is somehow behind what's happening here? No, nothing like that. The conspiracy theory about a shadowy group of people in the world is far too lazy of an explanation. Especially when the truth is much scarier. What is the truth? No one is in control. No one is pulling the strings. Sure, there are those like my friend who might have the right kind of access to the right kind of information. But when events like this happen in the world, the best even the most powerful people can hope for is a heads up. There's nothing you can do. Give up. Resign. Subscribe. Just, just join just in. The, the obliviousness to the, the circumstances that have created this world that we all look around at all the time. Is it's just so startling that they see themselves as having no participation in it, and I think the truly insulting part of all of the of that entire scene is the Obama's attachment to this movie. I think yeah. that's the most insulting part of all of this because even if this scene was in the book and it was described as such and replicated in the film, pretty much intact, the fact that it was done so with the Obamas being attached and unaltered is. It is. It's one of the 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 worst parts of this movie, 
You know, it is it is one of the most blatant disre- like disregardings for the the circumstances that people face in their lives. That oh yeah, like all that stuff you were saying. It's like it turns out like nobody's in control. Nobody's pulling the strings. We just have enough money to get a heads up. And by proxy, he gets a heads up from the person who got a heads up. So yeah. we're looking, and she gets a heads up from the person who got a heads up from the other person. This is all like it is all like everybody's on your own. There is it is it is the this is again the a perfect example of why this entire film is a neoliberal fantasy because neoliberalism in general, you know, this is like a word that you, we get all the time, but. It was a repudiation of like New Deal type um, uh, like uh, role of of the FDR New Deal type of role for government. It was we, a return can- to the, the like the the government being just this sort of a like a um, uh, all like the the entire role of the government was just to ensure that people could could like act out act in the marketplace. And that everything is going to be negotiated there. And the government's role is just to preserve the the existence of the marketplace, not to be a referee, really, not to really do anything, certainly not to fucking help anybody. And just to just to be there in the background. And this, this I mean, movie to, to continues point earlier, doing that. It, 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 this this movie continues doing that or, or continues along that theme because you see absolutely zero presence from the state in the film. There is no help. You don't see the military on the road. You don't see a single police officer. You don't see anything. You know, you you could have had, you know, obviously if these drones are functioning to be able to drop leaflets, you can get a drone in the air and, you know, you can, but you can, nobody knows how to reboot anything or reformat the, the hard drive on a drone and get it into the air. You can't do anything. There's no way to communicate. There's nothing. And that is exactly the role that you have carved out for the government going all the way back to Reagan. And, you know, where it is like, it is just meant to be there to preserve the market and to well, do that, as little as possible. That That's so fucking relevant for the Obamas being the producers of this and for the messaging that, that we see th- throughout this fiction that is the idea of neoliberalism, neoliberalism as the dominant ideology of the Democratic Party and, and liberalism generally, which a quick side note on that term, neoliberalism and liberalism, that I think is really fucking important. I, I'm sure plenty of our listeners already know about this, but it, it, it really strikes me as fucking crucial that neoliberalism has no connection to the term liberal as we commonly use it as a political reference to somebody who more or less wants social programs of some kind and, and wants some kind of social benefit and safety nets and stuff like that. That that kind of term liberal in the United States is not related to liberalism in the economic sense, which is what neoliberalism is basically calling out. And it is really just Hayekian um, uh, uh, Austrian economics, where the idea is the 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 economic system that's left alone by government does the best for everybody, and uh, we just need to l- let industrialists do what they're going to fucking do, and re- let the railroad companies build as they want, and have effectively Chinese slaves, and 
uh, forge the West, and and that's the best way that we're gonna we're gonna have an economic system that benefits everybody. That's the idea of liberal economics, but again, no relation to that, and it gets further conflated because of the Clinton era that introduced this neoliberalism to the Democratic Party that has been the mainstay of the Democratic Party ever since. It was not necessarily the case before that. They've been like nicking away at it since FDR, though. Sure, for sure. Absolutely. Without a doubt. This this has been the trend for the latter half of the 20th century. This is not like it just didn't just come up with Reagan or something like that. Oh, without a doubt. Reagan was when they finally were able to for, permanently at this point seize control. I mean, that that was pretty much the 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 crescendo of unionization in the United States happened just before Reagan. That that's basically the the beginning of the decline of unionization in the United States. And a lot I of other I think it was way earlier well. than that. Because they've been attacking labor and labor. I mean, the labor organizers, the leadership had been basically completely corrupted by by capital at that point. Sure. And and, and on top of that, I mean, they were they were totally fucking crippled by the Cold War as well in McCarthyism, where where they couldn't have connection to some sort of coherent ideology that could progress them forward with with anything beyond just participating in capital. And so, and so what I want to say about liberalism that I think is kind of interesting is that I think we do, there's a good chance that we have a lot of listeners who might self-identify as liberal. And I think that there are a lot of people like my parents, I think of my parents when I say this. They don't need to be here. <laughs> yeah, but, but this is relevant for what we're seeing in the film. I, I think of my parents when I say this, where they, they're, they're liberal, they're Democrats, they, they vote every election, they, they drive a hybrid car. Uh, they do they do the general liberal things. And I think a lot of people associate the idea of liberal with this notion of just doing generally socially good things and and giving a sh- flying fuck about somebody else other than yourself. But what I think is happening here and what we're seeing in this ideology in this film is the the kind of democratic party that is being promoted by the Obama brand and that we've seen since at least the Clintons, which is this idea that the market is going to govern everything. And and we're going to, I mean, really all the way back to Carter and the problem, the critique that I have when I say so disdainfully, ah, fucking liberalism. When I say it so disdainfully, I'm not saying it disdainfully thinking about my parents uh, who they're not fucking political scientists or anything like that. Uh, or a lot of my friends who are vaguely liberal. That's not who I'm thinking about. What I'm thinking about is the idea of promoting these institutions, capitalism, the state, a bunch of other things and saying, there's nothing we can do. We just have to play ball and get our corporate sponsors so that our team can win next election. And that's the critique here is 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 that this this film is promoting that idea of and these these fictions are really promoting the idea of there's nothing you can do. Just accept it. It's it's inevitable. You need to play ball. And by the way, probably the prepper is right. Well, and we get this with the prepper, but the prepper is not right. I'm not sure why you keep saying that, because he's he's functioning entirely on rumor and hearsay. He's yeah. like, my buddy says, you know, like my, my <laughs> buddy told me it was the Chinese that, you know, that they got flyers like this with Korean on them in California. 
you see nowhere in this film any sort of cohesive approach, like a banding together of people to address the common problems. Yes. It is just sheer hopelessness. And everybody gets just gets further um like further isolated. And that's part of what I see when I acknowledge that there's nobody else around in this movie. There's no people. It makes sense that it was written during the pandemic and during lockdowns, you know, or I guess it just came out then. There's no excuse for why it's written this way because lockdowns were, unless he wrote it in a month, which, you know, the quality of the writing might indicate that. <laughs> it's yeah. hard to get a book written and published in a month, you know? So if it came out in the summer of 2020, then it's, uh, this is just in the author's head, you know, to that, to not put any, to not populate his, his story with any other background people. And what they're getting up to. The only evidence of other people we see is at the end of the film when New York gets nuked, you know, because somebody did that. You know, that's the only other evidence. Well, the whole thing is written as daydreaming. I mean, it, it, it's basically a bunch of fucking shower thoughts with some characters as ornaments to move the point. Yeah. And, you know, to, to that effect, we'll, we're going to run through some of the some of the story, you know, at, like in a much quicker fashion now. So Jules is just so long-winded, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we get to Kevin Bacon. Um, Archie is super sick from the tick bite, teeth fall out, vomiting. They, you know, they frantically go get help from the from Danny, the the contractor who knows things. They they have a brief standoff. Clay delivers this useless man monologue where he whines about how he doesn't he can't do anything and doesn't know how to do anything because he's just he's, he's this regular guy without his phone. Yeah, he's useless without his phone. They finally convince Danny to accept what is probably worthless money now in exchange for some medication, and the pills are fucking blue. If that's if that's just a happenstance, that's just a happenstance. But if it is, that makes it that much more egregious because Esmile and Obama are absolutely oblivious to the to the connotation of having blue pills in their film. Well, the opening scene, the, the thing that the conspiracy theorists fucking harp about is that the opening scene is so saturated with blue. And I I was like, I don't know about that until I watched it for the second time. And I was like, all right, they kind of have a fucking point. There, there, there is a thing about the color choices being used in the background where, you know, you see Esmail trying to, you know, use He's blue trying to play with things, like color and shots. Like blue and is calm, red is dramatic and chaotic and, you know, that kind of stuff. But yeah. it doesn't actually match up with the events that are taking place in those scenes. Yeah. You know, like the, the scene that's blue in the opening in the apartment is blue, but it's also chaotic. So how is that supposed to be calming when Amanda is freaking out and saying, you know, I'm packed, I packed our bags for our last, for our no notice vacation surprise, you know, like that's not calm. That's, that's psychotic. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I don't think it, I don't think that the, the color analysis that I've seen makes any sense. Yeah. They get the pills. Somehow we're supposed to believe that these pills are going to make Archie feel better. He's got no fucking teeth. And, and he's throwing up why, blood why, and he's going to take why, some random blue why would, pills. Why would Danny know what pills are supposed to be for the, He doesn't even know what this fucking is. Right. What's the diagnosis here? He's got pills for Havana syndrome. He's got pills for Lyme disease. <laughs> what, what are these things? Yeah. Then, you know, we, we get GH's rendition of the three stage plan, you know, where it's, you know, where, what would you remember the steps of the plan? 
the the first part is to knock out communications. Uh, the second part is to create disorder where you don't know who's to blame and and to in sort of inject possibilities by by making it seem like it could be anything or anyone so everybody turns on each other and then gh says and the third part if done correctly will take care of itself and people will just turn on each other and the whole fucking government will uh crumble on its own they're taking notes from kissinger and the dulles boys this is this is this is our well i mean this is basically what they just did to libya a few years ago yeah you know this is what the government has done you know this is how we topple regimes around the world in the 50s if you recall our other episode i mean that's it's the game plan plan for the entire 20th century so the film ends as i mentioned a couple of minutes ago with some nukes going off in new york city I mean, how many times has New York been nuked at this point in films? I mean, my God. It was God. unclear if it was nuked or not, but it looked like a pretty massive explosion. I don't know. That looked like a mushroom cloud to me. Uh, yeah. I thought that was pretty clear. And in the screenshots of it, it looks very clear that that's a mushroom cloud. If not, it was a very large explosion. And, yeah, for you know, sure, for sure. Six one of one, half a dozen, right? And you could, um, you could hear like missiles and shit like that. Like it was clear, Rose has been missing that. for some time now. They've been looking for her. Well, she's made her way to this neighbor's house that they spotted from the woods earlier on. Um, she finds, she wanders through this house, finds a totally stocked pantry, and then gorges herself on junk food. Uh, after she eats the, you know, the the culmination of the running gag that began you know from the beginning of the movie is she's trying to watch the last episode of friends but doesn't have a signal and she wants to find out what happens to ross and rachel this is supposed to be more sort of like shoehorned commentary about i I don't know they mentioned it uh, ruth mentions it gh's daughter ruth mentions it in the movie about nostalgia for something that never existed well this, this this is this is a throwaway line at the very end of the book just mentioning that it's the episode where um, it's it's season three, episode one. I looked it up. I don't remember. It's basically uh, anyway, it, it's just it's just a throwaway line that she just, she sees this and she decides to get the box set. But nowhere else throughout the book is, is there anything about friends. But it is interesting that that is the only coherent story arc in the whole fucking film. Yeah, nowhere throughout the entire film is there a coherent story arc from start to finish. Other than her watching the goddamn. Actually, <laughs> I would say the friends. other coherent story arc is the insertion of completely misplaced references to racist things that are not explained. That is the common theme of the film. It's as if they decided we need to create a vehicle so that we can talk about a bunch of racist shit without ever talking about it. Without addressing it, without questioning the institutional concerns, how we got here, what to do about it, nothing. Just a just kind of like an idle whining. You know, so the 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 last of two Easter eggs in this movie are all the brands on the shelves in this fully stocked pan- pantry in the bunker that Rose finds, and you know, basically they're all problematic brands that have been associated that have been uh, you know gotten scrutiny for racist depictions of of their mascots or just the names of them in general. You know, we have uncle Ben's aunt Jemima, the, the trader Joe's Mexican lager, which is, which uses the name trader Jose. Um, and you know, and as you mentioned that the, the bunker itself is, uh, has a, uh, a maker's, uh, uh, mar, uh, a maker's plaque, uh, placard like a boilerplate. On it that says 
Commodus survival shelters. And, you know, Commodus is the Roman emperor, uh, Roman emperor who basically, you know, presided over the end of the longest period of Roman peace. And, you know, so we're supposed to see like some kind of Pax Americana thing going on here, you know, or something like that. Like the end of the, the eclipse of the American empire is finally at hand. The barbarians are, are at the five gates. Emperors? Do we do we get the five? Uh, do we get Trump and Biden? Uh, let's throw in Hillary. Probably um, we're gonna get we're gonna get Elon Musk. Who, who's who's our who's our fifth uh, fifth uh, emperor <laughs> that we're gonna get for Pax Americana? Thanks to Ismail littering his movie with these Easter eggs and the connection to the Obamas. Leave the world behind. Like I mentioned, has captured all of these. The imaginations of these conspiracy theorists. And all of these various conspiracy ideas come down to the one simple premise that the elite just can't help themselves. And they have to tell everybody all the time about their sinister plans. According to one video host. Leave the World Behind is more than a film. It's a playbook of the elite's plans masked in cinematic guise by dissecting these elements we empower ourselves against these hidden manipulations. We know these evil people at the top, they love to rub things on our faces, right? Obama is said to be one of the biggest evil people. It may not be the case. If it's not, then why would Obama and Michelle get together and help so much, be so involved with this movie depicting the end of the world? President Obama, um, <laughs> obviously, outside of being one of the most brilliant minds on the planet, um, he's actually a huge movie lover. And um, and he was a fan of the book, huge fan of the book, it was on his reading list. And he was committed to making this into a great movie. So he was involved every, from script to, to post. Um, and he, he you know, gave notes on the disaster elements, on character, on the theme. Um, it was a wonderful collaboration. This movie, which includes radiation damage through nuclear bombs and EMF, it also includes a little bit of racism against white people. If you're not open to this thing and you're just watching it as a movie and you retain this, you're not going to want to help your fellow neighbor when this all goes down, okay? And they also hint to Russia being involved with Korea. We made a lot of enemies around the world. Maybe all this means is a few of them teamed up. Okay, I've got it all for you. I've got it all broken down. But it's just very strange to me that we have a president that would be involved with making such fear porn for everybody. I feel like it's more legitimate than fear porn. I feel like they're actually telling us what they're going to do. And if you don't know, Obama- Two perfect examples of the elite doing this are the Great Reset, where it's the Klaus Schwab World Economic Forum Davos crowd's plan to reboot the global economy after COVID lockdowns, and usually baked into a sinister plan by the elite to create these permanent lockdowns in the form of 15-minute cities so that we can all be better controlled. I mean, as if we need to be better or controlled. Or just be able to bicycle to work. <laughs> well, that's not the conspiracy theory. I know, I'm, I'm just being fucking sarcastic. <laughs> I mean, as if they need to control us any better. Why would they need to control us any better? Well, to get what exactly? What is it that we're doing right now that is out of control as far as the people making money are concerned? I mean, we, we, always, we buy what we're told to buy. We largely live our lives based on the goals that they give us. You know, we, we, we buy the same fast fashion brand names. We buy disposable technology. We use credit cards for all of it. We pay for education with loans and we buy houses with mortgages. What is left to control? 
What do they want? You, you can't, you can't squeeze anything more out of this fucking stone. There, exactly. There is no more blood left. They, they've, they got it all. What they don't have anything to gain from, you know, some sort of like a prison planet idea where, where we're living in camps or something like that. And it's all slave labor. There is nothing to gain there because part of this neoliberal thing is that financialization. Everything lives in the market. Yeah. It's all in the market. There is nothing of value outside of the market. We don't need WEF to make me do those things because I am already doing them. <laughs> I don't yeah. really have a choice. You already do them. The, you know, the most savvy, self-aware person that is trying to, you know, that is critical of this, of the, this economic and political structure, the marriage of these two things, is still doing all the things that they're supposed to be doing. When when we look at these apocalyptic films, we I, there there are such fucking great apocalyptic films that don't have to beat you over the head with uh, some kind of like Democratic Party messaging uh, or or some sort of uh, uh, distant alienation and resignation to capitalism and this, this in some kind of uh, Pax Americana decline. I, fuck Mac, Mad Max was great, and we got fucking Tina Turner in one of the versions of it. The worst Tank one. Gir <laughs> Tank Girl had fucking kangaroo people, and I, it, we, there's fucking great apocalyptic literature and film and and fiction in general. And what we see with this is just this masturbative uh, self-aggrandizement. Uh, this this idea of an ostentatious view of of the of the of the role of intellectuals and specifically of of where certain people are going to land where all we need to do to to address these very critical problems is going to be that uh, uh, for for climate change and and race relations and the end of the world and the the decline of the empire we just have to have a nice have a nice dance to a 1990s hip hop album uh it, that nobody's ever heard of that nobody's ever heard of uh but dance like a you'd expect fucking uh Elaine to dance exactly right and on the nose and and then we're going to be all good and, and we're going to be fine and and that's going to bring us together and we just have to learn to get along and learn to to just go with the program. Are you trying to say that that's the message of this movie? I mean, I kind of fucking feels like it, which is, I, I don't think there's any message to this movie. I think there's none. <laughs> I think it is so the, the it is so confused and addled that <laughs> there, there is absolutely, there's nothing cohesive enough to be called a message in this film. Yeah, it is no. And, and, you know, likewise, I'd say the same about the book. You know, I think the 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 in insertion of all of these these you know these quiet commentaries about racism in the form of these Easter eggs further confuses the film in relation to the book. But I I don't think that even the core story had a message that was cohesive enough to say this is what the author is trying to tell us. Yeah, I, I think the the entire thing. Like I think Esmail said it best in the interview when he when he talked about Archie's illness saying that the, the whole thing's like a nightmare and nightmares don't make sense. Yeah. It's like he did it on purpose. He made this <laughs> yeah. piece of shit on purpose. <laughs> I think he did. 
All right. I think that's good. I want to leave it there. I think so, too. That was that was a great conclusion. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another Wet Wired. As always, you can get access to our extra episodes as we release them and listen to our entire catalog of premium episodes for $5 a month. Sign up at patreon.com forward slash wetwired. And of course, as always, uh, you can uh, find us at Wetwired Pod on all the various social media while they still exist until they crumble under the apocalypse. Until the hacker attack. <laughs> <laughs> and of course we we have uh, our discord where you can get sneak peeks uh of our rambling thoughts and things that we're reading that's a false promise but yes join the discord <laughs> see you next time everybody later skaters good morning so springs in the air that means ticks are out and about especially if you live in my area in the southeast so Bill Gates just released 5 million mosquitoes over the Florida Keys. This video is not about that. Keep it in the back of your head. With the mosquitoes in the back of your mind, um, if you're not already aware, you should be that um, they are really pushing hard for us to eat way less, if not no meat at all eventually, and go completely on bug and plant-based diets. Uh, in case you're not good at pattern recognition, check this out. It looks like meat, it smells like meat. This is all gonna be gluten-free and vegan and better for the environment. A new report from the UN says eating less meat is crucial to saving the planet. The planet we're discussing, Earth. The way we produce food and what we eat contributes to the loss of natural ecosystems and declining biodiversity. A little bit more conscious about it, try to minimize or reduce the amount of red meat is a uh, kind of rational and logical response to trying to, to uh, uh, combat climate change. And there's plenty more where that came from. So, pretty crystal clear that they want to phase meat out of our diet. Now, here's the thing. And remember the mosquitoes. And I got videos attached, just so you don't think we're going off on some wild tangent. Tick bites, making people allergic to meat. This is not a completely new thing. I heard of this years ago. But my understanding was that it was relatively rare. And this is saying that it's on the rise manipulating bugs and genes and they really want us to quit eating meat and now ticks are making us allergic to meat. I'm not saying nothing. I'm just saying.